But this is Palm Sunday. And there are uh, palms here if you'd like to take some palms home and, and decorate. Remember what we used to do is, uh, I don't know, well, growing up Catholic, what we used to do is we'd get two fronds and then we'd you know, slide one through the other one and make a cross and, and hang that up and keep that. So you know, feel free to uh, take palms either off the front of the, the uh, stage area here or over on the side if you'd like to have those um, for Holy Week, because Palm Sunday is the first Sunday of Holy Week. So it's the sixth and last Sunday of Lent, but it's also the first day of Holy Week. And so we are beginning the week long. You know, each day of Holy Week liturgically has a name, and it has part of the story associated with it. It's really brilliantly done, you know, for the last 1,600 years or so that the liturgy's been developing. But each day of the week is going to advance the storyline, moving through that last week in Jerusalem leading up to the, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection, of course, on Easter Sunday. And uh, I love it when we have that little voice in the, she's going to take him away, don't take him away. It's okay, you don't have to, unless he's bothering you, but that is okay. You can do that. Yes. Things that you never thought you'd hear spoken of, you know, from the pulpit. You know, <laughs> diapers and all sorts of things. But that's what I love. You know, the, our, our community is informal that way. We, I, I always say, if you, it, you never trust someone who doesn't like dogs and kids. I mean, that's, that's all there is to it. So we're dog and kid friendly, and here we are. But at any rate, um, yes, each day of the week is going to advance the storyline. And so Palm Sunday, what's happening today it is the story of Jesus' return to Judea, return to Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem. Why is he returning? Where was he before? You know, I think what I want to do here is set some of the stage because we often don't take enough time to set the scene and set the stage so that we understand the significance of the events because the events... Everything is contextual, right? And if we know what the scene was, we can understand why everything was at such a heightened pitch when Jesus rides in to Jerusalem. Where was he? He was Transjordan. What does that mean? It means he was on the other side of the Jordan River. He was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. That's a much more uh, wilderness area, a much smaller population. It's where the Essenes went when they wanted to leave the dense population of Judea because they were so disgusted with what was going on. And they built their communities like Qumran, where the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 40s, 1940s. But he was over there, and the reason he was over there is that things had been so heating up in Judea. He was in Judea all the way up to leaving and he, he really just had to get out of there. If you read John chapters 7 through 10 or Matthew chapters 19 through 21, it'll give you a sense of what is happening here, how things uh, were, were all coming to a nexus point, all coming to a head. The followers of Jesus as well as the authorities of the Jewish uh, religious institution were getting antsy. You know, Jesus had been on the scene for, for several years, but just in general, things had been building up in Judea. It had now been something like 70 years since the Romans occupied, took over, conquered Jerusalem, and occupied the territory. And things were heating up politically. Things were heating up culturally uh, in that period of time. Jesus, through his ministry, 
had been heating up, gathering more followers, getting more and more uh, attention on his ministry, on his words, on his signs and his actions. And everything was coming to a head. The people were asking and wanting much more specific answers to specific questions. Specifically, they wanted to know if he was the Christ. They wanted to know if he was the Mashiach. And they had a very specific understanding of what that meant. They wanted a warrior king who was going to come and kick out the Romans and reestablish Jewish sovereignty. Is that who you are, Jesus? This is what they wanted to know. And if you are the Christ, if you are the Mashiach in in Hebrew, then where where are the plans? What's going on here? What are you doing? He also was being asked theologically more, who are you? Are you God's son? And although he doesn't exactly answer the question, especially not the way that they were asking him, he was specific enough that division started setting in within his own camp, within his own followers. There were those who thought his answer was blasphemous. There were those who left because of this. There were others who picked up stones and were ready to stone him. Right at the beginning of John 7, the reason that he goes Transjordan is because they were getting ready to kill him. These are his own followers. Not to, not to mention the authorities who are already fed up with him and were putting a contract out on his life, basically, putting a hit out. They were plotting to kill him at their earnest, earliest opportunity. And so Jesus goes Transjordan to try to cool things off. They had just gotten too hot. And that's where the inner circle then, not just his followers at large, but his inner circle, the 12 themselves, start fighting and squabbling among themselves because they're jockeying for seats of power when Jesus does come into his kingdom. Because even after all the time that they spent with him and all the inner and and specific and intimate teaching that they got from Jesus, they still really didn't understand his ministry. They still looked at Jesus as the Messiah through the lens of what their culture demanded, that he really was going to set up a political kingdom. And they wanted their seats of power. You know, one set of brothers, James and John, gets their mother to petition, to lobby for them, that they can have seats at the right hand and the left hand when he comes into power. And you can just imagine Jesus' frustration at that point, after all this time, knowing how short the time is that he's got left, that he still can't even get across to his closest friends. What this is all about, where this is going, they don't understand his ministry. And there's more division inside the camp, outside the camp, with the people at large. And in the midst of all of this, he gets word that his, one of his best friends, Lazarus, is sick. Now, where does Lazarus live? He lives in Bethany. All right, That's two miles, less than two miles from Jerusalem. And so that's back on the other side of the river. And the first thing he does is announce, yes, we're going to go back and we're going to go see Lazarus. And everybody thinks, are you nuts? What is wrong with you? And so they're urging him not to go. It's just too hot over there. Do you remember why we came over here in the first place? And yet Jesus immediately says, we are going to go back. It's too risky, they say. Jesus knows it's too risky. And he's going anyway. It just doesn't matter. Because Jesus has set his mind on the next steps and what needs to happen. You know, it's at this very moment we talked about this, about the doubting Thomas and how Thomas is given the rap of being, you know, the 
the doubting one, the one without faith, the one without courage. This is the moment where Thomas says, let's just get up and go with him and die with him. Thomas was anything but cowardly. I mean, he was the one, yes. He says, stop stop it. We know what he's going to do. Let's go with him and we'll die with him if we have to. And so they come to Bethany, as again, just in the shadow of the Temple Mount. And Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And everyone is abuzz. Everyone's talking about it. This is the point where all of Jesus' fame and all of Jesus' works kind of come to a point. And this is all right at the beginning of Pesach. But we would say Passover in, in our language. It's an eight-day festival. It's one of the Shalash Regalim, which are the three holidays during the year that Jews from all over the world were obliged to come back to Jerusalem, to the temple, and perform their ritual there. And so this is a time when Jerusalem just swells with thousands upon thousands of foreign nationals who are also Jewish, who are coming to perform the rites and the services at the temple. This is Rome's worst nightmare. You've got to understand how they are looking at this. They've got the zealots out there who are fomenting sedition. They are doing assassinations and riots and doing everything that they can to destabilize Rome's regime. And now they're going to have this influx of people into Jerusalem, into the capital city. And they're just trying to hold everything down. This is the same time where everyone is talking about Jesus, about the raising from the dead that has just taken place. And all of this is coming to a point. It's a powder keg absolute powder keg. Even if you don't insert Jesus into the mix, it's a powder keg anyway. And now you take this man who has put everyone you know, into seeing him and their focal point is now on him and he is going to come back into Jerusalem at this very moment when the city is swelled with all these tourists and all of this agitation and 70 years of fomenting resentment and calls for rebellion all at the same time. This is what is happening here. At this point, at the height of Jesus' fame and animosity toward him, Jesus enters Jerusalem and the city goes kind of nuts as he does kind of crazy. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 21 and let's see how the evangelist puts it. Starting right at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Sion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him, and that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
So here's Palm Sunday, and here's the scene. You know it well. You know, we've rehearsed this over and over again. And if you close your eyes and you imagine the scene, maybe you've seen it portrayed in movies so many times, you don't even have to imagine it anymore. The people laying their cloaks before him, literally giving him the red carpet treatment, laying the palm fronds on the ground before him as he comes. The people shouting, waving the palm branches. And Hosanna, which is our version of Hoshiana, Hoshiana, which literally means, save us, we beg you, please save us. Palm Sunday is placed deliberately in the Gospels between Lazarus Saturday, which was yesterday. Yes, yesterday has a name too. It's Lazarus Saturday, which celebrates when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. And tomorrow, which is Fig Monday. And Fig Monday is named Fig Monday because it's the day that's commemorated both by Jesus cursing the fig tree and also cleansing the temple. And those two are understood as one, symbolically, metaphorically. The fig tree being the symbol of Israel and the temple being the symbol of Israel and its religious system at the same time. What Jesus does to the fig tree is not curse a poor tree, but to unmask the fact that even though it looked verdant and green, it could not sustain life. It could not preserve life. It had no fruit. And this temple, this glistening, magnificent structure that was the symbol of Israel, inside was a den of thieves. Inside was corrupt. Inside had no way, again, of sustaining life, spiritual life. So two is one. So here is Palm Sunday sandwiched between these two, between the height of Jesus' fame and adoration and the threat that he posed. Lazarus Sunday is the height of everything that Jesus was accomplishing in his ministry. But when he cleanses the temple, that's the last straw. It's all over between him and the authorities because he is now cut right at the heart of their power in a way that he hadn't done before, so, you know, bald-facedly. So between his fame, the adoration of the people, and between his animosity as a threat, you put this day today right there. Jesus had essentially crossed the Rubicon. If you don't know that, that phrase, it comes from uh, ancient Rome. Julius Caesar comes south into Rome, and there is, a there is a line that was a line between what they considered the provinces and what was Rome proper, and it was a little stream called the Rubicon. And no general could cross that river with his army or else it would be seen as an act of war. And he stops on the bank and he thinks about it and then he crosses right over. Jesus basically did the same thing when he crossed the Jordan and came back to Judea. He was throwing the die. The die was now cast. There was no turning back from all of this. He was committed to the course of action. Palm Sunday then stands right smack in the middle of a paradox which is what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. This paradox of who is Jesus? And the people are split on this question. Who is Jesus? They don't know. They're split. They're, they're trying to work it out. There's only one Jesus, and he was presenting the same to everyone. Jesus had such integrity. When you look at his teaching, he never backs down. He's like Tom Petty. He never backs down. I know you were thinking it, so I just had to say it. 
He doesn't back down. He doesn't change his message to suit whatever crowd he's talking to. He is who he is. And there's just one Jesus. And there are four basic camps of people. You've got the Romans. You've got the Jewish authorities. You've got the Jewish people themselves, which include the, the, uh, the insurrectionists and the, the zealots who are trying to foment a revolution. And then you've got Jesus' followers, four different camps of people that are all looking at the same Jesus on this particular day. And they have two different opinions about who Jesus is that we see being act out. Two of those camps, the people and Jesus' followers, see Jesus as their savior. The other two camps, the Romans and the Jewish authorities, see him as a threat. Is he a savior or is he a threat? Which is it? That's the paradox. How do we look at Jesus through this paradox? But see, everyone is rushing to a conclusion. Everyone is rushing in this crazy, chaotic scene to try to make a choice, to try to understand. And as they do that, as they come down on one side or another, and remember when you choose one, you're unchoosing the other. One is true, the other is not. And as soon as you do that, you miss the deeper truth that the paradox is meant to teach us if we can show respect to both sides. Not choose between them, but continue to work the tension in between them that takes us to a deeper truth. This isn't happening here. Everybody is choosing a side. He's a savior. He's a threat. That's the paradox. And Jesus is giving them clues. It's not like he's a potted plant here. He's trying to give them an idea of who he is. He rides in on the colt of a donkey. And this is hearkening to Zechariah chapter 9 that talks specifically about this king, this future king of Jerusalem, of, of Israel coming in on the donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And in that culture, if a king rode into a town on a donkey, that meant peace. He was not coming in war. If he were coming in war, he'd be astride a horse. And so right off the bat, you have Jesus showing us that he's coming in peace, showing them he's coming in peace. But then he comes in on the foal, the colt of a donkey, which is even signaling a lower and more humble state. Jesus is trying to say something very specific here. And it's in connection with the scriptures that they all understood. They can make this mental connection. They can connect those dots. And they're waving palm branches at him. They're treating him as a king, even though he's coming in on the donkey. But they're treating him as a king. The palm frond, the palm tree in the ancient world, was a symbol of victory. It was a symbol of triumph. It was waved at conquering kings that returned from a campaign. It was also to Jerusalem, the date palm, was a sign of abundance, a sign of overflowing health and wealth. It was a sign of shalom in a way. And so the people are taking these palm fronds and they're waving them at him as king. As we said, they put their cloaks on the ground. They put palm fronds on the ground. And all of this obeisance, all of this adoration that they're showing Jesus, of course, is not lost on the authorities. They're watching all of this. They understand the significance of this. And of course, the Romans are watching too, and they understand the significance of this. You want to get yourself crucified like that in Rome? Say in any way that you are a king. That's it. They would put their foot down so hard and so fast on anything 
that even smelled like insurrection, anything that would break the stability of the region and importantly stop the flow of tax revenue and other forms of revenue back to the state. That's what the Romans were all about, just that tax revenue, make sure that didn't get in any way erupted. And what are they shouting? Well, the text says Hosanna, but in Hebrew, that's Hoshiana. That harkens back to Psalm 118. Hoshiana Anayave, which literally means save us. We beg you, we beseech you, Lord God. Save us, they're crying. Save us. The question is, save from what? <laughs> what are they asking Jesus to save them from? You know, our primary need is going to reveal our bias. What we really need, what we really want is going to reveal our bias to a situation. It's going to reveal the filter through which we look at a situation. Even to yourself. You may not even be aware of where your bias lies. But if you put that criteria in place, what is it that I really need? And beyond, behind that, what are my fears that create that need, that create that desire? If I can identify that, then I can know which filter I'm looking through and why I come to the solutions and the choices that I come to. Each one of these four groups was looking at Jesus in a different way through the filter of their needs, through the filter of their fears and what their fears were driving them to desire. The people themselves, as we talked about, and the zealots, the Kanaim, who were the insurrectionists, they were looking at him as Mashiach, but as that warrior king that we talked about. They wanted to be saved from oppression, and specifically from Roman oppression. They wanted the, the knee off of their neck. They wanted the taxes to be lifted. They wanted their nation to be a sovereign nation again, as it was promised to them to be from the time of Abraham. That's how they were looking at Jesus, as this savior who was going to save them from Rome. The followers of Jesus were looking at Jesus in essentially the same way, even though you would think they had a little deeper understanding, and they did, but they still couldn't get past this cultural roadblock and their fears and their need. But for them, they had a lot more invested with Jesus than just the people standing on the street corner. They had spent time with Jesus. They were invested in Jesus. Therefore, they reasoned they should have seats of power when this whole thing actually took place. And so they were looking at Jesus to save them from anonymity, save them from their poverty and their powerlessness as marginalized people. And they were looking at Jesus to do that for them. Whereas the Pharisees and the Sadducees, well, they were looking at Jesus simply as a threat to their power base. Where did their power come from? It came from two things. It came from the temple system itself through which the people had to go. And for the Pharisees, it came through the law and all of the additions to the law that they had added and in, 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 you know, insisted upon the people that nobody could figure out. So they had to go through them. And all of that depended on their alliance with Rome, alliance in quotation marks. Israel was a client state. They had a you know, a puppet king installed on the throne that reported to Rome. But as long as they did what they were told and everything was done according to Rome's desire, which was really just keep the tax revenue flowing, then you could live your life as you wanted to. You could, you could run your, your religion the way you wanted to. Now, they couldn't 
they exercised capital punishment. They had to go to Rome for that. But short of that, they could pretty much do what they wanted. And so for the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the temple authorities, they relied on the status quo, not being interrupted. They had these alliances with the Roman authorities, and they could keep their power as long as they kept the lid on the people and what the people wanted. So Jesus was a threat to all of that for all of those reasons. And when you look at the Romans, they saw him as a threat to their power base as well. Not as anything as large as the the Jews saw him. He was just a fly to be swatted at. And Jesus had no power as an individual. They couldn't have cared less what Jesus said as an individual. But when he starts growing a following, when you see the kind of reaction that people had to him as he goes into Jerusalem, that's a turning point. That opens some eyes, raises some eyebrows on the Roman side. Because now there is a threat. You get this many people stirred up, there is a threat of riot, there is a threat of sedition, there is a threat of assassination and destabilization. And then there's going to be hell to pay from Rome itself for these procurators and the ones that are handling affairs in the Levant. And so all of this is in, in, in this intense mix as it's going through. Is Jesus a savior or a threat? It depends on what filter you're looking through, what your needs and desires are. It's the same Jesus, no different. But look at how many different ways he's looked at. And then think about the way that you look at him, too, because this isn't something that just is 2,000 years in the past. It's either relevant today or there isn't a whole lot of reason to study these scriptures. Same Jesus, but who is he? Savior or threat? Now, if we ask here, if we ask within Christendom, we're reflexively going to say he's our Savior, right? Of course we are. That's kind of the point. We're going to say he's our Savior. But hold on to that thought for a moment. If this paradox is to teach us anything, and not just them 2,000 years ago, if it's still in force, and absolutely it is, Who is Jesus has been the central question of Christianity for 2,000 years. And that question has to be re-asked by every single adherent to Christianity. We all have to ask the question. And we have to answer it to our own conviction, not to anybody else's. Who Jesus means to us is really what's at issue. So if this paradox is to teach us anything, we must withhold the quick choice. Oh, he's Savior. Therefore, he's not a threat. To choose one and say it's right is to say that the other one is wrong. And then we have disrespected the paradox. We've killed the paradox's ability to give us anything deeper. It stops any steps to further movement toward truth. What does this paradox actually suggest then, if it truly is a paradox? That Jesus is not just one or the other, but somehow, some way, he's both. He is both savior and threat at the same time. And that may be sounding kind of strange or even blasphemous to you. But if he is a threat, we have to figure that out. We have to hold that at least long enough to let it do its work in us. And he's not going to emerge a threat in any way that we probably have imagined But we must see with these new eyes that Jesus is always talking about, through to the paradox and through to the deeper truth. Jesus is trying to show us who he is. 
You could say that his entire ministry is about showing us who he is and what that looks like in terms of our lives and kingdom. He's trying to show us, but we're only going to see what we want and what we need as we look at him. Truth of the matter is, Jesus is not here to give us what we want. That's not his job. It's not his mission. He is inviting us to see what is real and right in front of us because that is what we need. What we need is tied to ultimate reality. But if we can't see that, we're never going to get there. If we say we choose, if we say that Jesus is a threat, if we choose Jesus as threat and not Savior, as many people do, More and more people are seeing it that way and turning away from Christianity, being done with institutional religion, which in their mind is the same as being done with Jesus. Then they're going to miss, we will miss, that Jesus really does save us. But if we say that Jesus is Savior, if we choose that Jesus is Savior and not a threat, then we're going to miss how Jesus saves us. Starting to see how this might work? Our fears define us. They make us see everything through the filter of our wants and our needs because our fears are driving those wants and those needs. If you're afraid of change, that means you're invested in the status quo. And that doesn't even mean that the status quo is good. It just means you're invested in it. Ever heard that the devil we know is preferable to the devil we don't know? Sometimes we're just so afraid of change and the unknown that it brings that even if the status quo is miserable, we're invested in that and we're going to hang on to that by hook or by crook. If you're afraid of change, you're invested in the status quo. Therefore, Jesus comes and rides into your life on that donkey as a threat to your power base as a threat to everything that you have built up in your life that keeps you going, that makes you think that you can survive all this, that somehow all this is going to be okay. Jesus is a threat to that, and you will hold him at arm's length, if not further. But if you're afraid of not changing, it's because you feel marginalized. It's because you are oppressed. It's because you're victimized. And therefore, Jesus represents you to you, a savior, a fixer of your problems. But that's not Jesus' job either in terms of fixing our problems. If we continue to look at this paradox of life through the filter of fear, we will miss the real Jesus. We will not be able to see him because we will only see what our fears are pointing toward. And Jesus says this is the real tragedy of Palm Sunday. He weeps for only the second time that that is ever mentioned in the Gospels. He weeps at this very moment. Read Luke 19, and let's see what he does here. At verse 41, this is as he's approaching Jerusalem in another one of the Synoptic Gospels. And when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side 
and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You did not recognize the hour of your visitation. No one did. All of these groups of people we're talking about, looking at Jesus through the fear, through their needs, through their desires, missed the hour of their visitation. Is it any better today? Is it any better with us? We would say, yes, it's got to be, right? But are we any better at seeing through the filter of our own fears? To see the real Jesus as he is, and not just what we want from him. The truth of paradox is that Jesus can't be our savior until he's first our threat. Let me say that again, because that's a weird sentence, even as I wrote it last night. (laughs) The truth of the paradox is that Jesus can't be our Savior until first he's our threat. He needs to be a threat to our power base, whatever that is. Everything that we hold dear, everything that we take pride in, everything that we use to our own advantage, all of that, has to be threatened. All of that has to be cleared out. And until it's cleared out, and this happens through the long, hard work of the 40-ness that we've been talking about, to go into that time, that period, using the four S's that we talked about last week, the silence, the solitude, the simplicity, and the stillness, that's what does the clearing out. Spending time in that place where we separate ourselves from the mind, the monkey brain, the ego mind that is telling us about our fears and telling us about our needs and telling us about our desires. To spend time away from that is to finally get a deeper sense of who we really are and how things are all right and well, but not in any way that we could calculate it not any way that we're going to connive it, not any way that we're going to arrange it. It's going to be okay because God is okay. And if we enter the flow, we're going to be okay. But not necessarily measured by the outcome that we have in mind either. Jesus has to be, and we have to allow him to be, a threat to that power base. That's what this is all about will never understand how Jesus saves us until we allow him to be the threat, until we allow him to show us what he's saving us from. Because Jesus is not here to save us from the Romans. He's not here to save us from any external oppression that we might be experiencing, whether it's personal or whether it's macro, whether it's communal whether it's part of our country. He's not here to save us from the far left or the far right. He's not save us, here to save us from socialists or capitalists. He's not here to save us from anything out there that we see as this threat, that we see as oppressing us, that we see as making circumstances impossible for us to be able to simply be happy and to find our meaning and purpose as human beings. Jesus isn't here to save us from our problems, either personal or national. Those are for us to solve. Jesus is here to save us from our fears. And he says that over and over again. 
He's here to save us from the fears that keep all of these problems in place in the first place, both at the personal and at the largest levels. It's the fear that drives the problems. And then we're trying to use the tools of fear to solve the problems, and that never works. Once we're free of the fear, then we're free to let our faith move those mountains out of the way. Only happens when we can move away from the fear. And we can't move the fear in our lives until we threaten everything we've built in our lives because of the fear. The things that we're clinging on to, those emotional programs for happiness and success, way deep down in the lizard brain that we were talking about a few weeks ago, those are built out of fear. Those were the programs of necessity because we found ourselves victimized. We found ourselves in difficult circumstances. But they're not going to be the programs of heaven or kingdom. They can't be because they're based in fear. We want to use those tools of fear to fix the problems of fear. And Jesus is threatening all of that on purpose because it doesn't work. He knows it doesn't work. And he's trying to give us the way that we can move through. Jesus is our savior and our threat. But until we accept his threat, then he can't save us. You know, this Lent, I asked God, we prayed here, and I prayed in my personal prayer time, that God would help me and help all of us to be able to clear out any of the distractions, any of the blockages that were keeping us from this deeper and more intimate connection with him, from seeing the truth through the paradox that would allow us to take another step closer. I asked for that. And then, starting last week, I got a kidney stone. <laughs> you know, this, this whole week has, has been so interesting. Um, there had been a little bit of pain on, on Thursday and Saturday of last week. And then Sunday, I felt okay, came in here, did what we do here. But by the time I got home, I was feeling pretty bad. And it just ramped up, ramped up until about 6 o'clock. It was just writhing agony. Now, I've heard that um, a kidney stone is the closest that a man will ever come to experiencing childbirth. And I don't know if that's true. You know, I guess a woman who's had both would be the one who would have to tell us. Is that really true? I don't know. Is that just another cop-out? Make men feel better about themselves, you know? But I'll tell you what, if it is anywhere in the realm of truth, I want you ladies to imagine a contraction, a single contraction that can last for two, three, or four hours. All right? It just never stops. I got to the point, you know, after I'd thrown up several times, I realized Marion was at work, and so I knocked on our son's door, Sean, he's 24, and I said, Sean, I think I need to go to the hospital, and I don't think I can make it. Would you drive me? And of course he said, of course. But I also saw the look in his face. You know, he wasn't prepared for a role reversal like this. I've always been the one, I've never really shared my weaknesses with my kids. I don't care to share my weaknesses really with anybody. I mean, that's just the way it is, right? That's what men do. And that's what I had done. And so, you know, he said, of course, we got in the car. We got in my car instead of his, which is probably a mistake because he was having trouble with the 
the sensitivity, he said, of the of the accelerator. And of course, he was stopping short like this a lot of times and doing that, you know. But we're going down the freeway, and you know, he's speeding up, and I could tell he's nervous. And I said, just you know, between breaths, I'm saying, calm down, it's okay, we'll just get there when we get there. And after a while, I said, you know, I had to ask him, are you freaked out? I imagine he's got to be freaked out, you know. And, uh, and he said, well, actually, Dad, I'm more freaked out about the car, you know. Uh, <laughs> your car's hard to drive. And I don't know what it's, I said, it's okay. You're doing great. You're doing great. And, you know, he got me there. And, and then I, you, you get there, of course, and there's nothing he can do. He can't park where he's at. And so he lets me out, and he's like, aren't you supposed to do something? I don't know. And I, you know, I start walking toward the hospital, and I said, just call Mom. And, you know, actually, Marion had been texting me, and she was getting off work, and she was heading to the hospital, too. And I said, just call Mom and connect with her. And I walk in there, and immediately they jump up and bring a wheelchair. And it's like, I don't want no stinking wheelchair, you know? It's a, you know, but I sat in the wheelchair because really... I was having trouble just standing at that point. I sat in the wheelchair. And then you go in and they ask you all these friggin' inane questions and you got to answer all these questions. And then Marion gets there and they finally wheel us in. And then you got to put on the gown. Man, the gown is really not cool. And it's open in the back. And, you know, um, and it, it's, in, you know, they don't always close the the thing and here you are just all kind of hanging out and there you are and then they come in and then people are just sticking stuff in you and they're pushing on you and they're asking you more questions and it's like they could be putting you know I don't know laundry detergent into my veins I don't know what they're doing here but you just let them do it and you got to trust them and, and trust what they're doing and it was just this exercise in humility, this exercise in submission that I haven't gone through in a really long time. I've been blessed by being pretty healthy, but man, this just took it all the way down to another level. You know, when we got back home again afterwards, it was, you know, by then it was, I don't know, close to midnight when we got home. And, you know, I met Sean in the hallway. And by this time I'm filled with, you know, really good drugs. And so I could speak again. And I just, I looked at my son and I said, thank you. You know, I said, you're my hero. And, and he just looked at me. And, and I told Marion, you're my hero. She came and sat with me the whole time. And then every day since has been about having to be med compliant, which I'm terrible at, and taking these drugs. And again, listening and submitting to. And the pain has been an amazing teacher, I'll tell you that. It keeps you honest. Because if you mess up, the pain is right there to remind you. You're not doing this right. I asked God to help me to clear out the things that were blocking me. And not just me, but all of us. And he gave me a kidney stone. (laughs) Now, any of you who know me well enough know that that's not what I believe. I do not believe that God gives us bad things in order to teach us anything. The only thing we ever get from God are good things. But I'll tell you what. This kidney stone is something that I absolutely needed in order to start looking again at the things that I've built up in my life that I have come to rely on. Always facing everything with this illusion of capability and and, and ability to do the things I need to do. Even Tuesday night, we had to go back to the hospital on Tuesday, and I got home just in time to turn on the computer for our Tuesday night conversations gathering online 
and I fully intended to, to do it and to be present to it. And I had a couple of people texting me who knew what was going on and saying, no, no, you don't do this, you don't do that. And I'm thinking, well, if I can, I will. And then um, I turned everything on, and I can hear the conversations that are going on. I heard the word Superman in there. And I don't know in what context, but I can imagine. And I say, you know what? They're right. I'm trying to do something that I shouldn't be doing. I'm trying to be Superman. I'm trying, again, to persist with this illusion out there that I can do it all, all the time. And so I didn't show up. You know, and Scotty took it over, and Frank tried to from the road at Texas, and his connection was in and out. But it was okay. I just sat back, and they did fine. I didn't have to be there. But to give up that, to let go of that stuff that I didn't even realize I was doing until I was forced to look at life in a different way. God didn't give me the kidney stone for this. But it's up to me to use the kidney stone, to let it threaten my power base, the one that I have rebuilt after spending so many years trying to take it down and to be really vulnerable and humble and transparent. But look what I had rebuilt and to allow that to threaten again. This is what we're talking about here. This is what Jesus is trying to do for us. First, threaten whatever power base that we have built to show us how it works, to block us from the very things that we think we want. And then he can work to save us from our fears. But it works just like that. And if we can't see through the horns of this paradox that both things are true in a way that we haven't imagined yet until we allow ourselves to sit in that focal point, in that tension point long enough to take us through to the other side. We'll never understand what Jesus has for us or what he's all about. And we'll continue to see him only through the filter of our needs. And we will miss the hour of our visitation. This is what Palm Sunday represents to me. And I'm hoping that it's starting to represent that to you. And to let the rest of Lent do its work and to see the things that are already in place in your life as these teaching moments, especially if they're painful, especially if they're threatening everything that you think you are, pay attention right there. That's it. That's the place to look. Jesus is my Savior, and Jesus is my threat, but not necessarily in that order. Let's pray. Father, thank you for prayers answered in ways that we would never imagine. Thank you for events in life that seem so contrary, but if we will sit with them, are showing us something deeper that we really need to know. Make us a people that is more aware, more alert, so that when things happen, we will take that breath. We will make we will, we will resist the urge to make that hasty decision that makes one thing right and the other thing wrong and find out how both can be true at the same time and conspiring together to threaten what we need threatened to get to a deeper truth that we wouldn't have considered before. 
Thank you for everything that makes up our lives, that takes us where you would like us to go because it's always going to be closer to you, yourself. And thank you for your love and constancy, Father. Help us to always recognize that we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.